0: command is, make disciples. That's the commission. That's the mission as Jesus defines it. Matthew 24, the message, which we'll talk about in just a moment, and in Acts 1, the means by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's what we're supposed to be doing. And I share that with you this morning because Jesus says in so many words, and as it's actually grammatically constructed in Matthew 28, as you are going, or everywhere you go, make disciples. So whether it's Brother Jim working with his teams, or whether it's Pastor Dave working with the sheriff's department, or whether it's you working in your engineering career, or the classroom at school, or whatever it is, we are to be about the business of, Making disciples. That's what Jesus has commanded us to do. But when we think about that, there are many ideas about disciple making. And I have books on my shelf in the library in South Africa all about disciple making. But I believe that we are best served if we look to the Bible to give us the insights into what it means to be involved in disciple making. So if you will go with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, a letter written to a church in which Paul only spent a short amount of time, probably five weeks max. He mentions that he was with them for three Sabbath days, and if you calculate that, it could work out to anywhere from three to five weeks maximum that he was with them before they ran him out of town. But somehow the Thessalonian believers seemed to grasp what the gospel was and what the gospel implications were, and what disciple-making was all about. And I believe that because Paul reminds them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 of four elements of disciple-making that he pursued when he was among them, and now reminds them of that so that they too can carry on the ministry of making disciples. For you yourselves know, brothers that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare you declare to you the gospel of God. Okay, note that phrase. In the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been proved by God to be entrusted with the... Uh, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves as well, because you'd become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. We're like a father with his children. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. I believe in this context, Paul identifies four major elements of making disciples. Four things that are essential to making a disciple. See, the, the New Testament word for disciple is simply learner. It, it means one who is brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ, but then becomes a learner, not just a follower of Christ, but a learner, a spirit-filled, word-impacted, growing to maturity, Learner. So making a disciple is not simply winning someone to Christ and then leaving them like babes on doorsteps. It is investing in them with a kind of spiritual parenting connection to see that they grow to maturity and a sense, if you will, of independence from us that they might join with us in the ministry of disciple-making. Now, disciple-making obviously starts with evangelism. Four times, as we emphasize it reading the passage, Paul goes to the gospel. That is, he references the gospel. Three times the gospel of God. The other time we've been entrusted with the gospel. Now, first of all, we need to understand what the gospel is. Because there are many messages out there today purporting to be the gospel. With all due respect... Don't misunderstand. Don't throw rotten eggs or rocks at me yet, okay? John three sixteen is not the gospel. It is good news. It is not the gospel. Revelation three twenty is not the gospel. It is good news, but it's not the gospel. Matthew eleven: Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is not the gospel? It is good news. It is not the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel that I declared to you and the gospel that you believed is this. Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised again. That's the gospel. The central part of the gospel is Christ's work on the cross. We understand that. But Christ on the cross is meaningless if he didn't rise from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're in a whole world of trouble. Our preaching is a lie. Your faith is in vain. We have no hope of eternity. And in this life, we are of all people most miserable. Why? Because we have believed a lie. But Jesus is alive from the dead. And when we proclaim the gospel... We need to be careful to help them understand not only does God love them, John chapter 3 and verse 16, not only does Christ want a relationship with them, Revelation 3.20, not only is he promised it will be a life of peace and rest, but we gain all of those things, we experience all of that by the gospel that Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised again. Disciple-making starts with proclaiming the gospel. And we must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that when that person is converted, when their lives are changed, they're actually becoming into a relationship with Christ himself. The story is told of D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, walking down the streets of Chicago one day, and he was accosted by a drunk. And the drunk said to him in his slurred speech, Oh, Mr. Moody, I am one of your converts. And Mr. Moody looked at him and said, Indeed, sir, you must be one of my converts. It's pretty obvious you're not one of Christ's converts. We must be careful that we don't try to win people to ourselves or to our denomination or to our worldview or our philosophy of ministry. We are trying to win people to Christ, that's where disciple making begins, and we're committed to that in South Africa. The work of Mountain View Baptist Church, as it's represented by our people and by our leadership team, is committed to the proclamation of the gospel. And we became very concerned about that in this past year, and so began to do uh, to make every effort by which we could equip our people for sharing the gospel but also put feet to that by connecting with individuals in the community. One of the first things that was done was to establish a link to what is called the night shelter. It's a place very much like a rescue mission in the States, with the difference being that those who come there can stay there for a certain duration of time. They become almost like residents there for a time. And so our church built a relationship with the night shelter. We have people from our church that go to the night shelter every uh, month. But the exciting thing is that people from the night shelter took an interest in that and began to attend our services. And so we provide transport for those people to come in. There are probably 10 to 15 people that in total will attend the church, probably not all at the same time, but a good contingency of individual residents from the night shelter, the down and outers, people who have no family, no connections, no income, uh, no means, and so on. But, But they come to the church. And Edwin, who is one of the residents there, was saved in the month of April after one of our movie nights and was baptized in our church on the 4th of May. Others have indicated an interest in being baptized. They've identified themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. But we're praying that there will be more like Edwin, who, being confronted with the gospel, become believers in Jesus Christ as a result of that connection. second thing that was done is our pastor's wife, Nancy, was concerned about women who struggle with depression. So she organized a seminar that was taught twice, on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night, She connected with a woman Christian counselor and a woman physician, and together as pastor's wife, doctor, and counselor, they presented this seminar to women. Probably only 40% of those were from Mountain View. They were from other areas in the community, some maybe from other churches, but many unsaved women who came in because they are women who struggle with depression, whether it's postpartum or chemical imbalance or whatever it is, this is their problem. And so this was a means of connecting with them. And a number of those women have continued to come back to the church to attend Nancy's Women's Bible Study and learn further about the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the exciting things for me was to connect with the Strand Fire Department. Through my friendship with Tallop, a firefighter who is a member of our church, I was given opportunity to become personally involved in the platoons at large, but also individuals in those platoons. And to build relationships with the men and women in the fire service with a view to pastoring them to the end that they would become believers in Jesus Christ. As far as I know, Tallop and Eloise, who are on Platoon 1, are the only believers in that platoon. But the others have accepted me as part of it. They consider me family. They have welcomed me into the station. I have free access to the station, whether Platoon 1 is on duty or not, and to build personal relations with those people with a view to leading them to Christ. The man on the left is Mr. Thomas that I shared with the Sunday school folks. He is a practicing Muslim. He is a childhood friend of my friend, Talib, the firefighter. But Talib converted to Christ, which resulted in Mr. Thomas being very, very angry. He thought that Talib should have maintained his commitment to his Islamic faith and so on. And they fell out for a time, but in God's goodness, they were able to resolve their differences. He welcomed Talib back as his friend. They served together in the same platoon at the fire station. And I would say without exception... Other than Tallop, Mr. Thomas is probably the warmest, kindest, most personable friend that I have in the platoon. It's exciting to be involved with him as a friend. Uh, they had a going away cookout for me the Thursday before I left for the States. Mr. Thomas prepared all of the meat and so on. I sat and chatted with him as he's preparing the meat. We, we chat at length often when I'm at the station. He always grabs me up in a big hug when I'm there. And He frequently tells me that he loves me. Uh, That's not usual coming from a Muslim for an infidel, especially a pastor in a Christian church. But he's a good friend and I covet him for Christ. Mr. Ottendorf is another in whose life I've been involved frequently in a variety of ways. He belongs to a cultural religion, but I don't believe that he's saved. And I pray that he will come to Jesus Christ. This is Nazim. My connection to Nazim also through Talib, because Nazim is Talib's brother. And I shared the story to great length in the Sunday school hour, but in the goodness of God, the day before I left, Nazim was in my home, and I had him all to myself for three hours. Talib brought him with to have a cup of coffee and a snack, but then Talib sneaked away to my study in the back of the flat and read a book while I was left alone with Nazim. I did not ask Salam to do that. I didn't even know they were coming. But in the providence of God, it all worked out, ending with my reminding Nazim that he is an image bearer of God. He is a person whom Jesus loves and for whom he died. I gave him a copy of the Afrikaans NIV Bible, marked the Gospel of John in it, and encouraged him to read it because it would tell him how much Jesus loves him and what Jesus did for him. He received it warmly and gratefully, and I am confident of further connection with Nazim when I go back. He, again, is a Muslim, but just as warm and friendly and responsive, and I believe that Nazim is a candidate for salvation. I believe that with all my heart. His wife, Bridget, is going to the Women's Bible Study in our church right now, attending with Talib's wife, Biola, and being exposed to the gospel and the love of Christ in that context. And that's what it's all about. Disciple-making begins with sharing the gospel, but you share the gospel with those you meet, wherever they are. That's what Jesus said, right? Wherever you go, as you are going, make disciples. And in the providence of God, and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, wherever I go, at least twice a week, if not three times a week, is to the fire station and spend time with the men and women who are there. Sometimes I will go over at supper time, And eat supper with the shift. It's not like Chicago Fire and some of the movies that you see where somebody, the rookie, has to do all the cooking, you know, and they either like it or they lump it or whatever. Uh, Everybody brings their own food. So I just bring my own food and sit down with them and eat. Uh, Interestingly enough, Mr. Thomas asked me one evening to eat with him, and he would provide the food. And when we sat down to eat, we were all by ourselves, no other fire people around. He said, would you pray? And I said, I'd be happy to pray. And so I prayed with Mr. Thomas. But uh, sometimes they'll go over at 9 o'clock at night for roll call and, uh, and be with them as they give all of the assignments for the remainder of the shift and so on and talk about what went on during the day. They work 9 a.m. to 9 a.m. Uh, for their shift. And then Mr. Carlsa, personal friend, commanding officer of the platoon, will go around to the various platoon members. Okay, Mr. Wenzel, do you have anything to share with us? Mr. Thomas, Mr. Adendorf, Mr., uh, Duncan, and he will go all around the room, and then he will say, Pastor Dave, do you have anything you want to share with us tonight? And uh, sometimes then he will ask me to pray uh, at the end of roll call. About two weeks before um, I left, he asked me if I had anything to say, and I said, yes, I do. I would like everybody in the platoon to come to my house for breakfast, an after-shift breakfast. They gave him the date, and uh, they all showed up, and I served scrambled eggs and sausages and bacon and muffins and and just pulled out all the stops. I had all these people in my home, and it was so great. Uh, they welcomed me when I go to their home, or to the fire station, and they were welcomed in my home. And it's just, I can't even tell you how exciting that is. And then to meet and build a relationship with Nazim is just icing on the cake. But if you go on, you discover that Paul is more concerned, or I should say he is concerned about more than simply sharing the gospel. See, the Great Commission says make disciples. It doesn't say make converts. So we need to be interested in building into their lives so that they begin to grow. And Paul says this takes two forms. Notice he says in verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children, affectionately desirous of you, sharing with you not only the gospel but ourselves. So Paul says disciple-making involves a parental kind of relationship that resembles a mother nursing a newborn child. So there is that immediate relationship of intimacy and nurture and closeness and a concern for providing an atmosphere where the newborn feels safe and secure and is nurtured for the initial stages of growth. You see, disciple-making is not unlike physical parenting. Paul uses that illustration to say, I relate to you or I related to you when I was with you the same way that a mother of a newborn will tenderly, affectionately, intimately, lovingly, sacrificially care for her child. When I was working, going through seminary, our daughter was born, and I worked swing shift, four to midnight. When I would come home at midnight, it was about time for my daughter to wake up. And I loved that because I had missed the previous hours. So I would wake her up, get her out of her crib, play with her, get her all alert and so on. Then I would hand her to my wife to nurse her because it was feeding time, and I would go to sleep. I'm saying that because sometimes mothering is not convenient. Feeding time comes in the middle of the night. Sometimes it's not comfortable. Sometimes it's not all that exciting because following the feeding is the changing of, well, you understand what I'm talking about. So all of those things are involved in in discipling as well. Sometimes it's not convenient. Sometimes it's not comfortable. Sometimes you have to clean up the mess of the young convert. But that's what disciple-making is about. We relate to them as mothers. Now, this is Father's Day. Notice what Paul says about fathering. He says, We work night and day among you, but in verse 10, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. What's the duty of the dad? The duty of the dad is to set an example. The duty of the dad is to lead by example. And Jim talked to us about that last night, the importance of character, the importance of modeling the Christian faith, not just words coming out of our mouths, but the way our lives are changed by the impact of the Word and the Holy Spirit. That's what fathering is all about. Verse 11, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you, basically, to grow up. Isn't that what we dads do? We're constantly investing in our kids, challenging them to try a little harder, reach a little further, go at it again, because our desire is for them to grow up, to become independent. We can't wait for them to graduate and find a job and get married and move out. (laughs) That's what fathering is all about. That's not disrespectful. That's the way God designed the family. He designed the family that husband and wife Should grow more intimate over the years, but that children should grow more independent over the years. It's God designed that they leave the nest, that they go out and find a wife and cleave unto that wife. That's what it's all about. And that's the same thing in discipling. It's our desire to help these individuals grow up to some semblance of maturity where they can, quote-unquote, declare their independence. And it involves exhortation, it involves confrontation, it involves education, it involves stimulation. Whenever I read this passage, I always think about teaching my children how to ride a bicycle. Is there anything more challenging in fatherhood than teaching a child how to ride a bike? And you get them on the bike, and there are no training wheels. So you get them started down the road, and they're pedaling, and the front wheel is wobbling, and you're running trying to keep everything upright, and then ultimately you let go and the wheel begins to wobble a little more, and maybe they hit some loose gravel, or maybe they realize you're not hanging on anymore, and so crash. Down they go. So you wipe the blood off of the knees, and you kiss it to make it well, and you may even put a bandage on it and so on, a Fred Flintstone bandage or whatever it is that they won't be too ashamed to wear. And then what do you do? You get the bike back up, you put them back on it, and you try it again. Because we're investing in them, we're encouraging them, we're exhorting them to become independent. And that's just a very mundane example. But that's what fathering is all about. And notice, disciple-making is not unlike physical fathering. It's too late for David and me. Our kids are grown and gone. But some of you have young families, and you're still learning what it means to be parents, and you may hear all kinds of advice from all different kinds of people. It always amazed me, uh, Dr. Spock and the influence he had. If there's anyone who contributed to the lost generation in the United States, it's Dr. Spock, if all of his books were laid end-to-end at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, it would be a good thing. <laughs> I don't think any worse advice was ever given to parents than from Dr. Spock. But let me encourage you, read the Bible and what it says about parenting. This isn't even a family passage, but Paul gives us insights here on what it means to be a godly mother and a godly father, investing in your offspring, as he describes to us what it means to invest in those who have come to faith in Christ, our newborn babes in Christ, and we want them to grow to maturity. This is Johann. Johann came to my first class back in 2008 as a believer who was finding his way back to the Lord. He seldom took a lot of notes in class, but he wrote down a lot of questions as we would cover the material. And so as he asked me questions after class, I suggested to Johan that instead of spending time, because it was already half past nine at night, why don't we meet on Friday or Saturday morning for breakfast, and and we'll engage in the discussion that relates to your questions. We did that almost without fail every week for four years, as as I worked and spent time with Johan, to help him come to maturity. He had previously married the woman in March before he met me. He married the woman with whom he had lived for 10 years. She wasn't even a believer yet when I met Johann, but she has come to faith in Christ. Both of them have grown to greater levels now of spiritual maturity because, don't misunderstand, it's not about me, but I related to Johann like my son, and he refers to me as his dad. He's even told me that if I ever get kicked out of the place where I live or I can't pay the rent where I live, he will take me into his home. That's pretty comforting. It allows me to stay in South Africa and allows him to care for me as an aging father. I just, I welcome that. But that's how we relate to each other as father and son. And he has grown like a bad weed. We've obviously been in relationship for six years, but four of those years was a formal discipleship. Now we meet almost every week, but now it's to discuss the work of the ministry and so on. Uh, I'll say more about that in just a little bit. This is Talib, the man to whom I referred, the former Muslim. I've been discipling Talib for two years. He came to me with a concern that he didn't know anything about the Bible. He said, I grew up in mosque school. I know a lot about the Quran. but I don't know anything about the Bible. My children are going to Sunday school. They're learning things I know nothing about. They're asking questions for which I have no answers. Will you help me? And so we started with ABWE's book, The Story of Hope, meeting with Talib every week. Friday is Talib Day. If he has shift, we meet on Thursday. But meeting with him every week, he is very devoted, very committed, very desirous to grow, and has grown like a bad weed. Uh, just taking root and being built up in the faith, as Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 2. He is my best friend in South Africa, and uh, we spend time together in each other's homes in addition to the discipleship time, and I'm excited that, Lord willing, he will arrive in Washington, D.C. a week from Wednesday, and we'll spend some time together on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. But that's what discipleship is all about. It's not just making converts. It's pouring your life like a mother sacrificially into a newborn, but also standing alongside as a father, encouraging, exhorting, challenging, educating, training, building up, and so on, so that there is a growth to maturity in Christ. And isn't that what Paul says? We want you to walk in a manner worthy of God. That suggests coming to that place of maturity. Walking worthy doesn't mean that we finally prove to God how worthy we are. All right? The word worthy in the New Testament means that you measure up to what it is you're claiming to be or what it is you want to do. Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling or with you have been called. The calling of God to salvation and grace. Paul says, measure up to that. In Colossians chapter 1, walk worthy of God. Measure up to that. What does that mean? That means doing good works and continuing to grow in the knowledge of God. In Philippians chapter 1, walk worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? It says that our walk ought to match our talk. So if I'm sharing the gospel, I ought to live like I believe the gospel. And here again, walking worthy of God. So we invest in disciples so that they grow and come to a place of maturity. And I would submit to you, going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which I won't do just now, that we do that to the end that, they become partners with us in ministry. I shared with the Sunday School Hour that Tallop has the, the spiritual gift of showing mercy. And Tallop is involved in the ministry, doing hospital visitation, in-home visitation, compassion type of ministries, where he invariably captures a scripture that is spot on to the spiritual or physical, mental or emotional need of the person that he's spending time with. This is a man who came to me two years ago and said, "I don't know anything about the Bible," and has so invested himself in the study of the Word and growth in the Word of God, now he feels equipped to be able to select scriptures that are applicable to the situation in which a person finds themselves. He is very adept at the gift of showing mercy. And this past February was elected to the leadership team of the church. You can imagine that what that does for my heart, to see not only people like Pastor Dave and Sue and others in whose lives I have invested in the states become active in the ministry, but now these disciples in a cross-cultural situation, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, to become more confident with those wobbly front wheels, to see their skin knees heal up, no more messes to clean up, and just see them launch in the work for the ministry. That's also been true of Johan. Johan, two years ago, he has the gift of teaching, so began to teach in our growth group program, which is a Sunday night ministry to adults where they can choose from at least three different classes or courses that they want to study in a small group setting. And so uh, Johan began to teach in our growth group program. And even as I speak, he is finishing up teaching his third adult growth group. And first term, third term, and fourth term will be involved in teaching the youth in our church. So the work of discipleship, as Paul defines it, is that to which we are committed at Mountain View Baptist Church. And I share that with you because when you pray for me or pray for the work there, I want you to be confident that we are attempting to fulfill the great Commission not following a book written by someone, with all due respect to those authors, but following the steps as they're outlined in Scripture, whereby we buy up every opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ so they can be born again into God's family. But when they are, not to abandon them, but to invest in them to an even greater degree, even at the point of self-sacrifice if necessary, to help them understand that we love them as more than just a statistic. They're not just a notch on the gospel gun. Uh, That significance of that, I probably don't have time to share, but I will. When I first went off to university, when I received my acceptance letter, the respondent said, Coming to our university, you will learn how to load the gospel gun and how to shoot it. And I've never forgotten that phraseology. Because I learned at that university that evangelism was a lot like shooting people with a gospel gun. You put the notch on the gun, you report it next Tuesday in class, that you shared the gospel with someone, and then you move on to the next person, never seeing that individual again. Discipleship isn't like that. We share the gospel so that people can be born again. We disciple them so they can grow out of spiritual infancy. And we invest in them so that they will develop with spiritual maturity. Then to equip them so that they become involved with us in the work of the ministry. The exciting thing about the work in South Africa is that it is by God's grace and for his glory. That's the only reason that we are there. Even the work of evangelism is not fulfilled when a soul is saved. The ministry of evangelism is fulfilled when it's done to the glory of God. Everything that we do in the work of the ministry is to glorify God. And we are allowed to do that because of his grace, which has called us and which sustains us. I would ask you to pray for three things for the work in South Africa as the Lord brings it to your mind and heart. First of all, would you pray that at Mountain View and the Center for Biblical Studies, we would never waver from our commitment to the truth of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, will you pray for the establishment of a new ministry in Hermanus, a community located about one and a half hours east of us, where there is no Baptist church. We're not saying there's an absence of the gospel there, but even in churches that profess to preach the gospel, there are some theological problems that give us cause for pause. So pray that the Lord will continue to give us direction in the establishment of that church. And the third one may sound a bit selfish at the outset, but I, I hope you understand the spirit and the context with which I share it. Will you pray for me that I will run strong to finish well. Nothing scares me more than to stumble before the finish line. And I look at men like Dave and his wife and others in whom I have been privileged to spend my life and time and invest in them and think what would happen if if I would Go down in moral failure? What would happen if I abandoned the faith? What would happen if I stumbled before the finish line? Pray that that doesn't happen. Because I'm as vulnerable as any man walking the planet. I'm as subject to satanic attack as much as any believer who ever lived. Not some superman. I'm old. And the finish line grows nearer every day. I don't want to stumble. Before I get there, pray that God will sustain me. Father, I thank you for these precious saints. Thank you for their welcome, their hospitality, their attention. I thank you in advance for their prayers as they bring the work in South Africa and even my own personal life and testimony before you in prayer. I thank you for Pastor Dave and Sue for the leadership team in this church, for the Sunday school teachers, for the disciple makers, for all, Father, who are involved here in the various work the ministry with their spiritual gifts and talents and abilities, for the investment of their time, resources, praying that this would be a true anchor point for the proclamation of the gospel and the discipling of individuals in Ferndale. I would join my prayer with that of many others in this congregation for Jim and April as they go back to a context that is not necessarily uh, accepting of their faith, not necessarily respectful of their commitment. I pray that you would insulate their marriage. I pray that you would insulate their hearts. I pray that you would give Jim a platform for his teammates, as he knows full well, Father, that any deployment can result in some of those teammates stepping over the threshold into eternity. And I know he's burdened they would step into the arms of Jesus, not into the flames of hell. Keep us mindful, Father, of the reality that wherever we go, we're to make disciples. May we do it with grace, but may we be faithful to the mission, even as we're called, until Jesus comes. Amen.